0: The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Outlander business. The two seater commercial SUV with over 2,000 litres of cargo space, two
1: ton towing capacity, and legendary four wheel drive technology. MitsubishiMotors.ie.
2: It's Thursday, and this is George Hook with The Right Hook on News Talk. Here's a digest of some of the items we had on the programme today. You'll remember. Uh, on the program yesterday, um, we attempted to put into context um, what uh, a rookie guarder gets on his first day on the beat, because as we understand it, he gets... Uh, 23,000 a year gross, uh, which is less than, substantially less than, the average industrial wage. And it also emerged, of course, that three newly qualified Gardaí had, in fact, decided to quit the force pretty well on their first day of work. I'm delighted to welcome to the program uh, one of those three now former guardy, uh, and obviously he wishes to remain anonymous for the purpose of the interview and we're happy to agree to that uh, so you've left there must be there must be a great sadness at the same time of leaving a career which is a very vocational one i would imagine you either want to be a guard or you don't
1: most definitely. I suppose, uh, first of all, I suppose a big t- part for this is I wanted to make this phone call to help my colleagues. Um, I've actually left the job, so it makes no odds to me how much more they're paid. But I feel at least I'll be able to give a voice for them because they're actually not allowed to speak out about it.
2: I I made a guess yesterday when talking uh, to, to on the radio that 23000 a year... Probably equates to a take home of three hundred euro a week. Am I close to the number?
1: Uh, you're very close. My take home was actually three hundred and three euro a week, um, and that was that was living up in the in the Dublin region. And I'm from down the country, so that was a, a, a weekly income of three hundred euro. We'll say rent was five hundred plus so you were effectively working two weeks before even putting a drop of petrol into the car to get to work, you know, and we'll say you put the bills on top of the rent, food on the table, and even just having a life as well, George, you know, it, it doesn't add up, and it, there's a, a common misconception that gardy are very well paid, it's a job for life, you get this great pension, whereas you have to work the 30 years to get to the pension, and even the new recruits, the pension is so much worse off than it is um, for the for the guards the, uh, prior to the uh, recruitment freeze.
2: Now, uh, just one thing. I mean, yes, of course, you, you the pension. But, I mean, you have to live, as you rightly point out, and work 30 years to get to the pension. You have an entitlement to have an expectation that everybody else has of getting married, of having children, of buying a house, all those kind of stuff. So we can park, although the pension is a great idea, for particularly for people who don't have one, we can park it for the moment because it's 30 years down the road. We have to talk about you know, you going on the beach and having to live. Now, you mentioned down the country, so you're 100 miles away from home, I guess, are you, when you're working?
1: Uh, 100 miles plus. Right. So not alone that I have family and other commitments back, back down the country, but I was working six days solid up up in uh, the Dublin region, and then the minute that six, six days were over, I was back in the car, back down. Yeah. So you're trying to juggle everything, you know?
2: Now we're talking, by the way, to one of the young guards who have actually left the force pretty well, almost as soon as they qualified because of the inability to live on twenty-three thousand euro gross a year. Um, did you always want to be a guard?
1: It was something I looked forward to since I was a kid, and you kind of even to get into the job in two thousand and fifteen. I applied back in two thousand and thirteen. So went went to probably about a year and a half recruitment to get into the job. A lot of different sacrifices to get into it. And then through our time in Templemore, we were on less of a wage. And then when we got out, you're working the exact same as your partner, but getting a fraction of what that person is getting paid, you know?
2: So, you're uh, driving a car or walking the street with another guard facing the same kind of risks, obviously, uh, but with a huge difference in paying
1: conditions. Massively. And even so, the dangers you face are out out of this world. and A lot of the stuff doesn't even reach the press of different things that happen, you know. Uh, A colleague of mine who passed out the same time as I did uh, actually received. Head injuries last night. That will never, ever, ever the press, you know.
2: And, and how dangerous is to walk in the streets of Dublin being in a, the uniform of a guard of sheer corner?
1: Well, you're a marked target almost. You're the first responder to every call, even when it's a, a car crash that an ambulance assembly. And more more often than not, the guard here there first. And it's different dangers you face, uh, whether it's armed robberies or burglaries uh, aggravated burglaries, you have uh, a, mo- a wide mix. And every time we pick up a call on the radio, you don't know what you're going to face when you get there, you know?
2: Yeah, just going back to the money, though, um, 23000 a year, 300 a week take-home pay. You did, in a sense, know what you were going into, though, didn't you? I mean, you knew what the pay and the conditions were.
1: You had an idea, but you didn't have a definitive answer, you know, and I suppose you didn't realize you couldn't live on that that was that was a big issue um I would have thought it would have been a lot closer to home that I didn't because obviously it was highlighted to us that the rent allowance wasn't there, so we were going to need to sort our own accommodation and be able to pay for that but it, to be to be living off three hundred euro a week paying for the rent it it just didn't it didn't add up for me, and I left a good job to join the Guards because it was something I always wanted to get into. I got in there and discovered I was eating into my savings that I'd worked hard to get, to be able to work in a job. And so it was but effectively the, costing me money.
2: You mentioned about the rent allowance. Um, clearly, the guardy did get allowances in the past which are now no more. Is that the position?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, but, but If that all accumulated to make up for the pay that kind of assisted with it, we 23 was our growth, so your take home was about 18 and a half to 19, you know. And it just like to be able to live in Dublin and work a full time job and have everything going, it just didn't add up. What about overtime?
2: Many people in jobs, whatever they might be, have overtime, which makes up uh, uh, for uh, to increase the take-home pay. Guardie of overtime, don't they? Uh,
1: when it's available in 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 the city, Dublin, there's a lot more overtime than there would be on the the outskirts and around the the country as well, you know. But it's it's not a given. Uh, half the time you have to fight to get it. But uh, I'd say in the Six months I worked there. I think I worked one hour overtime.
2: But, but you were there six months. When did the first kind of realisation hit you? You know, I can't do this anymore.
1: Uh, I suppose the final shot that broke the camel's back was when I went to the ATM to pay for stuff in Tesco and uh, came back insufficient funds and that was from my weekly shop you know you kind of go I can't go on like this and a, a big part that people don't realise as well especially for the new recruits is the Haddington Road because the Guidea have turned down the Haddington Road there's a pay, an, imp, uh, an implement of uh, a pay freeze for the next two years which would mean that new recruits are on 23 grand uh, gross pay for the next three years
2: but there is, an I, I mean, the GRA are now attempting to get an increase for, for Guardi, is isn't that so? I mean, they're looking for an increase to the minimum wage of uh, 35000 approximately.
1: Yeah, they're looking and they've constantly been looking, but it's hard enough to see it without action, you know. Um, the GRA, I suppose, got the new recruits into this place as well at the time because, new recruits didn't exist when they were breaking the deal at the moment uh, at the time and that's how uh, the rent allowance was lost for the new recruits it's still in existence for the existing force Um, the pension levies were made at that time as well so the GRA have a lot of input into this as well you know
2: Now, you and my guest is one of the Gardaí who've decided to resign because they cannot um, uh, live on 23,000 a year. And for most of us listening, uh, it seems an extraordinary um, amount of money, so little to pay somebody who faces uh, physical danger almost every day of their working life. You applied in 2013. It took a year and a half to get into Templemore. Then you completed your training in Templemore and you become uh, a, a, a fully-fledged Garda uh, Shukchia corner after you pass out. Now, having invested, in effect, three years, what are you going to do now?
1: Well, I've kindly got my, uh, my old job back. Uh, my employer was very open and looked for me to come back. And you know what, I was closer to home, life life was easier, I was able to move on with my family life. Life was pretty much on hold for those three years because you were trying to so much get into their career and you didn't get much in return, you know?
2: It seems that your life has been on hold right to the very moment that six months after passing out, you decided to give it up. I mean, you appear to have spent, I mean, three years isn't much given that you have a pretty substantial life expectancy uh, and you're still a very young man. But but it's still three years investment in a career that now is no more.
1: Ah, uh, it's, I suppose after doing this is after college, so I'd done four years of college gone working and then this opportunity came for something because it was something I looked at previously but the the recruitment freeze was on so to get this far and then just to feel so let down and I couldn't see it improving it would take probably 4 or 5 years extra to kind of even get some bit of movement with the pay freeze that's coming in you're just kind of saying it would be different if I was younger in 1920 you'd have a chance to kind of establish yourself but by the time I'd get a decent um, lower start to the increments. It will be about thirty-two,
2: thirty-three. You know, uh, and you'd hope to be married with kids at that point, or or have some kind of commitments in your life. Um, exactly. What? Um, what would you say um, to young men and women who are considering joining the Garda corner What would you say to them? I
1: suppose. It it is a calling. It's something I'm very glad it is. The training, I think, will really stand to me in the rest of my life. Um, But I would definitely tell them to have another option because if it doesn't work out, you don't want to get stuck in it. But if
2: if we think about this just before you go all of us citizens we don't really think about it um you know we, we probably think about the guard Shakho as a fella who who catches us going over the speed limit or something and then suddenly like me one day my house gets burgled and suddenly I realize how I'm, I'm, I'm important the guardi are to me or people's lives are protected today by men and women who take a risk it's extraordinary that that we accept as citizens, that we also pay them less than people who might well be stacking shelves in, tech, in, in, in local supermarkets.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that was something that really came to me when every day in work you're pulling on a stab vest. you're pulling it on for a reason, there, there is a huge risk. But I suppose in relation to what you're saying, George, what would happen if we didn't have guides? Anarchy, you know.
2: Well I think about that very clearly uh, and most people do. It's also very important for people I think to understand that uh, in the hundred years of this country um, there have been different governments and all the way through this country uh, the Guardia have stood firm behind law and order. You only have to think about to this very day in countries like Spain where their Guardia Seville uh, had a very uh, it took sides in the civil war and to this very day the attitude towards the police is very different in Spain to what it is now. We're extraordinarily lucky in having these young men and women and uh, to the caller, one of the three Gadda who has chosen to make another career we wish him well and thank you so much for joining me on the programme
0: Thank you very much The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super-smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
2: Now, 20 years ago, the British Conservative government announced the link between BSE, mad cow disease, and the variant CJD in humans Um i'm joined now by john comor president of the irish creamery managers uh, association and uh, he was a farmer 20 years ago john it must have been pretty depressing
3: george Milk suppliers association i only manage my own farm oh milk suppliers <laughs> <laughs>
2: sorry about that
3: that's quite all right I tell you, 20 years ago it doesn't be long passing. I was only a young slip of a lad. In fact, I remember it quite clearly because it was my first year uh, in business as a farmer after taking over from my dad. And, and I suppose you could only describe it as panic uh, in all the industry at that particular time. And I think it was fear of the unknown. Uh, and from recollection and from a small bit of Googling, uh, it was the 20th of March, uh, 1996, that John Major announced Uh, to to the House, uh, that the the tinnitus link had all but been established between BSE and new variant uh, CJD.
2: Now, uh, sorry, John, the point about this was that, like, I remember 20 years ago, kind of the inference was if you have a hamburger, you're likely to get CJD.
3: Yes, but just prior to that, there wasn't. But the reality, you see, was that in the UK in 1986, Uh, there had been BSE cases uh, identified. And in Ireland, we had a case in in 1989. Uh, But the the, the link hadn't quite been established between that and the the zoonology part of it, uh, where where it can cross over to the the human population. And and that was the panic, because if you had eaten the lower end cuts, we call them, uh, you were apparently, according to the scientists at that time, more at risk of contracting or developing uh, uh, new variant. Okay. And that—that
2: that is why we don't have offal in our restaurants, whereas the French, in fact, do serve offal in the restaurant.
3: Well, we do take out, and a lot of the, uh, I, I think most processors at this stage take out SRM specified risk material, uh, and I don't want to go into the details of what that material is, uh, but prior to that, it, it could possibly have been contained in the lower end cuts of food, uh, and unless it was cooked Uh, for a long period of time, at a a certain heat, uh, then it had the capacity, potentially, I'm not a scientist, uh, but we're told, to transmit uh, the mutant prion, which is the CJD, to to the human population. Uh, And and the other scary part about it was, George, is, is, you know, we're told that there could be a very, very long incubation period. Uh, So the whole population of the whole world that ate burgers were supposed to be at risk. But in reality, to counterbalance that, uh, in the UK, up until 2009, uh, I think there was 164 deaths attributed to CJD, which is, you know, uh, sympathies to everybody involved and all that, but in the context of the world pop- t- population, you know, it didn't manifest itself okay. into what it potentially could have. But,
2: but but this kept us out of the US market for until comparatively recently, I think, isn't that so?
3: Oh, until, uh, until last year, but the most immediate impact in 2006 versus, or in, in 1996 versus 1995, in 1995, George, uh, live on boats, we exported uh, uh, 250,000 cattle to Egypt. Uh, that market was shut down overnight, and a lot of those markets were were closed uh, to Europe, uh, and there was a lot of controversy. Um, ironically, at that time, for different reasons, uh, over the Russian market, uh, and Russia needed beef at the time, and and there was a big debate going on because. Uh, John Major was the Prime Minister in England, John Bruton uh, was our Taoiseach, uh, and Ivan Yates was the Minister for, for Agriculture. And, and coincidentally, Michael Noonan at that time was the Minister for Health. Uh, but uh, Russia was negotiating with Ireland because they, they wanted to be shown that they, they, they were caring for their citizens at home, but what they did actually was they banned beef from three counties at the time, and from memory I think it was Monaghan, Tipperary and Cork, and they allowed all the rest of Irish beef into Russia at that time, uh, and there was a lot of uh, palava at home because at least we were getting a route to market for from some of the okay. companies. now
2: you're are, a rookie, like you're in business a year. You've taken a farm over, um, like in in a week later or two weeks later or whatever. When you went down to the mart, was the price uh, for the cattle had it dropped?
3: Well, what what I noticed and and remembered specifically from that time because I was trying to rationalise it in my own mind. Uh, because sometimes you're always looking for business opportunities. Uh, from, from the first three or four weeks in the March, from my experience, uh, and, and one of the biggest marts actually and turnover terms beside me here is, is Balmart and County Mayo, uh, the, the prices actually were, were stable, if not increasing, because it hadn't, it hadn't you know, been rationalised as to the effect it was going to have on the, on the finished product, and farmers were actually still paying high prices. But then all of a sudden, uh, when the prices collapsed like a stone at factory level, and I think from the CSO figures, an average 550 kilo bullock in '95, start to '96, uh, was making around 970 uh, equivalent in euros. And uh, just shortly after that, they went down to to 720. Now that was a massive drop, but it took a few weeks for it to sink in.
2: But it, but it hasn't gone away though. I mean, the last case of BSE was was actually in twenty fifteen. Uh, in our now deaths from CJD have been have declined substantially in that period in the UK, where only two deaths were reported uh, per year at this point. Uh, but nevertheless, um, BSE hasn't gone away. Now, isn't that because? Um, it's it's because of the feed so if you get if the wrong feed is fed to the cattle the possibility of bsc exists is that it?
3: No. no we we have to knock that one on the head right okay. now george right. that's that's inaccurate and all the science says that it's inaccurate now uh, certainly when when it was at, at at huge levels the contributing factor was feed uh, that that feed has been taken out uh, it's a criminal act and a criminal offence uh, to feed uh, rendered proteins back to to bovines. Uh, And and, and that's an established fact and it's not a practice that happens. But the scientists will say that there will be odd cases come from no reason and has been for a long time. Uh, And there has always been uh, CJD in humans at the levels that we're experiencing about now. So things are back to where they traditionally have been for hundreds and hundreds of years and, and, and how it's contracted or established in the first place for those lower levels is difficult for it to be established okay. categorically but, by scientists themselves.
2: But if I had the president of the Irish Farmers Association on the programme, he would and rightly so say our beef is amongst the best in the world in terms of its testing, in terms of its identification, uh, and all that. That is true, is it not? Compared to other markets um, or other countries who are trying to get beef into markets. It in competition with us?
3: Well, absolutely, George. And as a lobbyist, uh, when we're out in Europe and they're talking about trade deals uh, like like TTIP and Mercosur and and other trade deals that has, you know, the potential uh, to provide more competition, we'll say, in Europe against Irish farmers and European farmers, what I say quite clearly on behalf of Irish farmers is that we can provide a quality product and compete with the best in the world as long as the playing field is, is, is level. All right. What I'm saying clearly, and it's an important point, is we can't have it every way. All the traceability is all very noble and all very justified. Uh, and all this uh, qualification and regulation comes with a cost to the primary producer. And that cost has to be recouped from the marketplace. Okay. So, you know, if we're going to be importing products from other entities and other jurisdictions that doesn't have the same cost, because they don't have the same regulations then it's hard for us to compete but on a like for like basis we can compete with the best and our product is simply
2: the best right, John Comer President of the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association uh, with a nod to Tina Turner there our beef is simply the best
0: The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7 seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips MitsubishiMotors.ie
2: Well, this weekend, of course, sees the great celebration of the rising of 1916. But could the result have been different? What if the rebels just had a little more military experience? What if the plan had been more flexible? Well, to talk about it, I'm joined now by security analyst, himself a former officer in the Royal Irish Regiment, Patrick Bury. Patrick, you think they could have achieved more?
0: I think so, George, yeah. Um, in terms of there's, there's lots of what-ifs, you have to be very careful with counterfactual history. Um, and I suppose from a military point of view, if they'd had a bit more experience or if they'd had a contingency plan... Um, they could have held out longer, and it could have been differently. Um, I think the main thing to hone in on is, if you're doing counterfactual history, you have to identify a, a tipping point, a really one or two incidences that came close to happening, um, which, if they had happened, would have had a, a knock-on effect on the chain of events. And so, I, I, I sort of posited that there there were three people um, I picked out in, who were within either the volunteer community or even were aware of the IRBs. Plan plan um, that had some experience that could have made a difference uh, and then also said if they'd had a contingency plan based on the high risk nature of the guns landing you know just before the rising and then they were trying to fool uh, the volunteers into uh, a wider mobilization if they'd had a plan well what if that doesn't actually happen um, can we hold the whole of Dublin uh, probably not therefore what should we do so I was just you know it's, it's been an interest it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an indulgence but Ever since I was a boy, I always, you know, wondered, flashed, wished that it had been a military success. And, yeah, but um, um,
2: there are a couple of things that, um, even to a layman, but but nevertheless someone who has a great interest in, in warfare and the history of particularly 20th century warfare, the two great wars. Um, hmm. Intelligence is vital. Intelligence it is worth guns bullets bombs um and the second thing then is uh, strategic leadership if you look at intelligence um for instance the they the dublin castle failure the failure to take dublin castle they 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 shot a um an RUC, RAC man, but they didn't seem to know that in fact Dublin Castle was defended by just six soldiers. They also could have completely paralysed communications, could they not? But they thought that they, the the uh, telephone exchange was defended by a ton of soldiers. Like they could, they they did did nothing in relation to. Uh, All the troops they knew were going to have to come up from the Curra by train. They did nothing there. I mean, doesn't this strike you, to be honest, as a pretty ham-fisted revolution?
0: Well... Yes and no. You're right. You know, it's, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, they didn't take the, the... Like, if you'd... There's a lot of points there, George, I suppose. If you decided that, um, you know, von Klauschwitz, the theorist, talks about you, you select and maintain your centre of gravity, what is the key thing you need to take? If you've got a third of the troops and you're mobilising on Monday morning and you reckon you've got a third of the troops than you thought you had, or at least half um, than you had the day before, for instance, you probably can't hold both sides of Dublin, you know? And there's a nice uh, river that runs through it and splits it tactically and there's two canals which form a circle if you decide that the and the gpo is like now it's important that it's a national myth but back then not really you know dublin castle was the center of the administration if they'd selected dublin castle as the center of gravity and thrown all the forces at the gpo at that whether they had the intelligence or not they would have held it yeah. They would have taken it and held it. Um, uh, and in terms of the wider intelligence picture, you know, Plunkett did do some intelligence. He reconnoitered a lot of the positions, especially in the South, as did uh, James Connolly. So there was a bit of um, intelligence, and, and recce went into it, but they didn't have the, the sort of the more professional element to it. Um, so I think, you know, a, a, a massive force in, in the castle could have, had a different, uh, could have had a different effect, simply because there were so few people there. Um, And if you concentrate your forces, this was sort of the argument I was saying, because the second you split your forces um, with the Liffey running through it, it's easy to to, um, bypass uh, and cordon, which the British actually did. But what you really need is a a strong outer defence, which we saw at Mount Street Bridge, where they killed about 240 um, Sherwood Foresters, 17 men, you know, killed 240 as they tried to cross a bridge. And if you'd basically repeated that Um, and the Brits as well didn't have any intelligence you know they didn't know where they were walking in blind some of them thought they were in France when they came off the boat in Dunleary so if they'd um, picked the south decided we don't have enough men to hold the north we're going south we're taking the castle Um, you would have had this hard outer defence based on on a natural barrier they would have been able to mutually support each other from the buildings and they could have fallen back slowly as they inflicted casualties on the British towards the castle that's really what I was saying you know you can still raid you can send forces out to um, the GPO and uh, destroy the telegram systems there you could also send forces waiting for them at uh, Amiens station you know waiting for the troops to come in from the Kura hit them there so there was numerous options. They just didn't have the the, the military experience and okay. the planners. Yeah,
2: but even if they had the military experience, what was happening coincidentally uh, on the Somme, on, on on the Western Front? You were looking at set piece battles, trench warfare, men walking into machine guns in 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 line abreast. Uh, and you had people like Earl Haig, uh, the Commander-in-Chief, who you know had no idea of tactics of movement and so on that you would have that today would be taught at staff colleges. So weren't Pearson and, and uh, Connolly and the rest prisoners of that kind of thinking anyway? And and it was only when Collins arrived and and realised that. Guerrilla warfare was the way forward that we actually made progress.
0: Yeah, so it, there's definitely um, an element of truth in that, and especially with Collins. And there was, there was this uh, argument going on within the volunteers and the IRB, well, mainly within the volunteers, about are we the hedge fighters and the guerrillas, or are we the urban stand? You know, But Connolly also gave lessons about the tactics of urban warfare and about the need to um, reinforce positions and street fighting and this kind of thing. So there was, you see, I, I, I agree with you, in the open open fields of Flanders, it was trench warfare. And if you look, you know, some of the people like Michael Mallon, you know, and I would wonder about this because he, he, he had been out of the army for 12 years uh, or so around by that stage uh, Michael Mallon had uh, actually dug in the troops in Stevens Green now if anyone as most of your listeners will have been to Stevens Green you'll know the last thing you'd want to do militarily is dig trenches in there and then allow the British forces to get into the Shelburne and rake you with machine gun fire you know um, so yeah of course there's a naivety there um, but with a little more you see Ginger O'Connell was one of the people I put forward as well you know he had good military experience being in the U.S. militia, and he describes Plunkett's plan as too clockwork. Um, you know, it was far too prescribed because the idea was, it was if there any sort of change happened, you know as they say, um, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And if any sort of friction happens in your plan, which is what Plunkett's plan was, it was very prescriptive. One battalion here, two battalion here, three battalion here, don't move, stay there. And sure, you ended up with these forces in some places that did absolutely nothing, and others which fought amazingly, you know. But so, you know,
2: finally, uh, my guest, by the way, is security analyst Patrick Bury, who, who believes if things had been different, the, the volunteers might have won a famous victory. did? Um, they, they, surely though. you you had the IRB. You had this extraordinarily secretive organisation. Not every volunteer was a member of the IRB. Not even, not even every member at senior level was a member of the IRB. This was a revolution planned by almost, uh, planned by one group and affected by another to a degree.
0: And that's the case, yeah, they were trying to co-op the, the wider volunteers, but like Michael Mallon, who had been in the British Army, did have experience and he had the, uh, he also had a knowledge of the plan before it was enacted. Um, so he was one, he could have used his clout with Connolly. Um, Dio was the uh, had planned the host gun running, you know, and had a good idea of sort of the logistics and the the preparation that goes into military operations. And he turned, he was in St. Edna's when um, McNeil confronted uh, Pierce. And imagine, you know, it's a what, and he later joined the rebels in the GPO. So he obviously was um, already sort of torn between what he should do. If he hadn't run off Um, Around And it's all, you know, it is counterfactual. But, you know, he was there on that Saturday night. And if he had decided, actually, this is going ahead and I'm with the rebels, what's the plan? He could have said, well, this isn't going to work, because I know for a fact that you're not going to have all the men you need who you think you're going to get. You know, so it it, it was finely balanced. If you'd had a bit more military experience, it could have changed things. I don't think in the long run, you know, the British were always going to get stronger. The Irish were always going to get weaker as it went on. But it could have gone on longer. Um, And they took 365,000 rounds of ammunition off the rebels, which goes to show you that uh, they were equipped for a fight, whether they um, they just weren't in the position to keep fighting when they were actually, you know, taken out of um, More Street in the GPO.
2: But at the same time, finally, uh, Patrick uh, Pierce's idea of a blood sacrifice may, in the end, for all its its weakness, may actually because that's what created the change in heart in the Irish people who uh, that weekend were uh, in, in to large numbers utterly opposed to a rebellion, and and it is Maxwell's failure in shooting so many people uh, that created a change in heart in the in the populace.
0: Absolutely. And what, what, why the rising is interesting, and, you know, and, I, and I mentioned this, is that you know, what we've got is tactical and operational failure, which leads to politico-strategic success, simply because of that vision and the British repression. However, imagine if they'd held out for two weeks, and after a week, then the rest of the volunteers in the country start going, actually, these guys are holding out, and they're inflicting serious losses on the British. What would have happened? What you would have had was the start, I think, of a battle for narrative, which actually happened after the killing of the the rebel leaders. All right.
2: Thank you so much for joining me. Security analyst, himself a former officer in the Royal Irish Regiment, Patrick Bury. Now, tomorrow on the programme, we're going to have uh, a 1916 debate. We're going to have some interesting people in the studio, and we're going to talk about it. So, uh, tomorrow... It's a good Friday, but it's the commemoration weekend, the start of it, and we'll be playing our part on the right hook. Coming up after five o'clock today, we're going to be talking to one of those three. Uh, Garda, members of the Garda Shia who decided to give it all up because they couldn't live on the pay scale
0: The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips
2: All right, well, my next uh, guest made an emotive speech at uh, the Union of Students in Ireland 2016 conference. And, in fact, such was the quality of the speech that uh, he gained a standing ovation from the delegates. It's the president of Blanchardstown IT Students' Union, Jason Ockney. Jason, welcome to the programme. Thanks very much. Now, you talked at Congress um, about... Uh, gambling addiction. Yeah. So how real is
4: it? Oh, I think it's a, it's a huge uh, current issue that actually doesn't get the, as much media attention as it deserves. Um, you know, there's other issues like alcohol abuse and drug abuse and stuff like that. And I think gambling is right up th- with that, um, but it's just not getting the attention it deserves.
2: Well, in this speech of yours to Congress, to other students and mm-hmm. student leaders, what were you saying to them that created such a reaction?
4: Well, in fact, um, you know, a lot of people uh, afterwards, you know, when I got such a, a great response were saying to me, geez, you know, you must have uh, done some research into it. And in fact, I hadn't. Um, I was really just speaking from the heart of my own personal experiences with gambling and growing up. Um, my father is, is a gambler, um, you know, and we, we I've seen there firsthand what it's done to, you know, uh, the relationship with my mother. You know, they're divorced now and seeing the impact it had on our family. And, um, you know, just when we thought we were putting it all behind us, it all became very current uh, when, in fact, my brother actually uh, fell into that rut. Um, and we're, we're quite lucky it was only a small stint, uh, but he did it did result in him uh, gambling away a Susie Grant, which, you know, is something I, I feel very strongly about when I see uh, how difficult it is for some of our students to receive a Susie Grant. I myself was dependent on a Susie Grant and um, it, it was a factor in... Mm-hmm. Him, him having to drop out.
2: Okay, but I, I mean, our our belief is that students don't have very much money, so yeah. you know, therefore, where do they get the money to gamble? What they do is they gamble their grant or they gamble any money they can get. Is that what amounts
4: to? Well, I, I feel like you know, um, with the way the Susie Grant works now, for instance, or if people have part-time job, is you know, you get it in installments. You know, that's usually the, the way it is. And if you are under financial pressure, then there is that temptation, uh, you know, to gamble. And um, particularly when it's it's a typical Irish thing, you know, you hear of all the winnings and you never hear the losing. Sure. So this is what social media is doing.
2: Well, I'm glad you raised social media because, like, if I had gone into a bookie shop when yeah. I was a student in Cork, uh, everybody would have known in about yeah. 10 minutes because mm-hmm. you had to go into yeah. a bookie shop. Yeah. Now you can do it from your bedroom, anywhere, because you can do it in your phone and Are you concerned about the advertising? Like, the advertising seems to say... You can't lose.
4: Yeah. Oh, definitely. That's Cash a,
2: in now yeah, or yeah. we'll pay everybody. If Arsenal lose, we'll pay everybody.
4: Yeah, yeah. That oh, That's a huge uh, problem as well. And I think it goes beyond that yet again. You know, um, And an example I'd like to use is, you know, if you recognise the fact that you have an addiction of some sort, you know, something that a lot of people resort to is they might Google it, let's say, for example. Um, but if you're to Google the effects of gambling, um, you're not directed straight away uh, you know if you look up on your mobile you're not directed to uh, a link that's going to help you the first advert in fact is a link to a gambling site which is offering you a free bet and, uh, you know, so you're recognising that you have an issue and already there there's the temptation of an incentive to, to go and do it again. So I think it, it, it's far beyond the fact of just the gambling. It's, it's how they promote it.
2: Well, what about help then? What sort of help is available? Because we're talking about gambling on the campus. What help is available to students?
4: Well, um, like, on, on, you know, you have things like student counsellor there on campus, you know, um, and as well as that, the student union, you know, you know, I wouldn't have brought this up if I didn't feel it was something that we can't deal with firsthand. And um, in fact, it's why I wanted to bring it to a national level. And um, so I'm really hoping, like with the newly elected team there with USI as well, that we can work together, um, you know, to form some sort of research and to look into it deeper and, and create awareness around it.
2: But it seems to me that, I mean, if you, the major problems we have um, of cigarettes or drink or gambling, all of which are addictive in some shape mm-hmm. or form, um, the only way you can fix it, though, is in some way tackling the supplier. Yeah. And we try to do this with smoking, where we put warning signs on packets. Mm-hmm. Um, if we don't tackle the supplier, we're never going to solve the problem. Yeah. Aren't we? I mean it it's I I just I'm astonished now watching television. Mm. How many ads on television are offering me a free bet or Mm. cash in before the match is over. Like I know it all off by heart because I'm watching it. Now I I don't gamble at all, like of any description. Uh, I think d-
4: the, the the concern there, um, George, is the fact that um, you can link up your 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 current account to this website uh, that you can do nowhere else. So there's a direct flow of cash. You know, uh, it just
2: walks out of your yeah, account. It
4: walks. Uh, you know, and there's that temptation there once that you've signed it up that you know it's 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 the flick of a finger. You know, I mean? and
2: also the problem here is like for a student, nobody at home knows because yeah. it's his phone. For a married man or 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 somebody. In Relationship, a woman in relation, she may, have, they hear, she may have no idea mm-hmm. that the partner has an addiction.
4: Exactly, until it's too late. Yes, Uh, it's always too late. Yeah, yeah, and that's when the damage is done um, which is in fact what what we've seen ourselves with with my brother in that instance, you know. Uh, It takes someone to hit rock bottom to realise they have uh, that issue and then to to come and look for help hopefully it's provided they have that support around them which my brother was very lucky he did, you know.
2: In terms of family.
4: Yeah, family, yeah.
2: But but all addictions, um, like we all have addictive personalities. Uh, Now some of us, it's fairly simple, it's like bounty bars or yeah. something, but yeah. it's the same it's the same personality disorder, yeah. it's just some are destructive and some aren't
4: Yeah, exactly, and that's uh, exactly where the awareness would come around uh, with that, you know, uh, I know you were saying about, you know, some way tackling the supplier in some sense but even just, you know, up the level of awareness around it can have a huge effect, you know, we need to let students know about the short and long term effects it can have, uh, you know down the line, you might want to look for a car loan to help you. You know, w- w- if it's in relation to a job or anything, just for for your own for, for your own good, um, or even you know, if in a relationship, looking for a mortgage and all these things. Uh, when you direct when you directly link it to your uh, personal account, and these places are looking for bank statements. You know, it is affecting it long term. You know, uh, it,
2: sure. Now my guest is Jason Ockney, three time president of Blanchardstown IT Students Union. Tax the problem of gambling on a campus. Um it, it, I mean you say it's a problem I mean is, would you describe this now as as a crisis I mean are we talking about a substantial number of students, we're not talking about a small number of students.
4: Definitely and you know um, uh, as soon as the motion passed you know of course being very proud of it I put it directly up on our uh, Student Union Facebook page and immediately students uh, contacted me you know thanking me uh, telling me their own personal stories and then on another note students started tagging each other uh, letting. it's saying, oh, this motion is for you. And the amount of people that were tagged in it really showed me that, you know, it is affecting students.
2: All right. Thank you so much. Um, Jason Ockney, president of Blanchardstown IT Students' Union, who made the long trip for Manus and the USI Conference to be with us. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for listening to that digest of news from the Daily Right Hook. But, of course, you can hear the full version in all its uh, excitement between 4.30 and 7 every day, Monday to Friday, here on News Talk. Do take care.